you doing? Uh, I'm doing really good, thanks. What are we talking about on the show this week? Well, there are no games to talk about, so we're not talking about anything, actually. That's it, folks. I know. Uh, we can talk a little bit about the international break, and there were some football games. I managed to miss the England game and completely forgot it was on, and England going score seven or something like that. We'll take a lot of questions from listeners this week because, hey, why not? And we'll look ahead to the game against Sheffield United at the weekend. Uh, in which uh, overlapping centre-backs completely flummox our forwards or something it's, like that. It's very funny. And, and I'm sure we have lots of listeners that also listen to the TIFO Football Podcast. And if uh, if you don't and never have, it's definitely, definitely worth a listen. It's one of my, my favourite football podcasts. I'm a little bit biased, but because I have friends there. Because but... you're on there all the time. <laughs> I've been on there once. I've been on it once. Pouring <laughs> yourself out to uh, yeah, <laughs> the world of podcasting. Um, but uh, Alex Stewart, who does the, the tactics for TIFO, is just like absolutely sick of being asked about overlapping fullbacks. He's like, it's not that fancy. It's just got fullbacks that get, um, sorry, overlapping centre-backs. It's not that fancy. They just uh... No, it's not. In fact, actually, um, if you think about it, Terry Venables did this at Euro 96. Absolutely. To great effect. To nearly, effect, yeah. to nearly absolutely great effect. I um, I also didn't watch the England game, not from any sort of like, um, sort of, you know, hate England, anti-football, anti-England hipsterism, uh, which is which is quite prevalent. Although, actually, if there was ever a week for anti-England tribal football hipsterism, the fact that England fans booed Joe Gomez, uh, I mean, this is why, this is why we don't like you. <laughs> this is why fans of... Uh, non i guess clubs outside london I'd, I'd like to have a conversation with like tottenham arsenal fans about what they think of the national team and their relationship with it because um I, I really didn't understand it booed him because what he got punched by raheem sterling <laughs> and raheem sterling sterling is one of england's better players these yeah. days i mean it took me back to the time that uh, united players used to get regularly booed playing for england for no apparent reason I mean, not just beckham and phil neville who um, transgressed at the uh, at various tournaments, but uh, just anyone who was a United player is really odd. Um, yeah, stand anyway, up, stand up if you hate my new chance at England games. Yeah, when yeah, yeah. five of the starting eleven were playing for United and were born and bred United, and you know we we know about this and and. You know, there's been lots of nonsense tribal reaction, lots of Liverpool fans going, oh, there was one journalist who tweeted something about it being a new low for the English, for English football. And they're like, mm, I feel like it's a new low that you've noticed for English yeah, football. Yeah, anyway. exactly, yeah. Um, well, um, it, we were recording on Sunday afternoon just before England kick-off against Kosovo. Let's assume England do get the point that they need against Kosovo to qualify. I don't oh, think that's I know, it. they're they already qualified. Yeah, they're qualified, yeah, um, I think. Yeah, they the did. Group. Right, that's right. Um, and I think they need a point to assure they're top of the group, although they'd have to lose some yeah, huge amount or something like that. So, yeah. Uh, England through Wales uh, beat uh, Azerbaijan, I believe. I think they beat Hungary as well to get through. And Hungary, right? yeah. So they're um, they're they're doing well. I don't think Daniel James scored this time, but he did uh, nearly pull off a worldie, which was then knocked in on the rebound um, as Wales um, beat Azerbaijan. Oh um, no, they haven't they haven't played Hungary yet. I, I saw okay. I saw a headline earlier, and I thought that meant that they'd uh, they'd beaten them. But you're right, they've beaten Azerbaijan to to keep it alive. Yeah, right. Um, Victor Lindelof played as Sweden beat Romania. So, yeah, hey, uh, good on Sweden. Uh, Spain beat Malta. David De Gea didn't play. He was on the bench, although uh, I think this is really about giving uh, some other players some game time because actually David De Gea was reintegrated back into the Spain side um, given his decent start to the season. You know, I think we can say he's not out of form anymore. Amazing what a... Massive new contract will do for your confidence. Uh, there were a few other United players played. Mason Greenwood um, didn't score, but played for the England under-21s. So, full 90 minutes. James Garner scored twice for the under-19s. Wow. Um, he had, uh, yeah, including one very nice one where he beat a couple of players and curled it in. Uh, it looked very good. Like, lovely player. I mean, definitely needs to play more at a lower level than the Premier League before he's ready for United. Uh, Marcus Rashford scored for England. Did we mention that already? No, and, but it's just, it's. I think that's seven and eight for club and country. He's he's on yeah. absolute fire Back at the moment. Back in form again, yeah. There's still quite a lot of people on Twitter who 
seem to be convinced that he's you know the worst thing that has ever happened to United's forwards. And I, I don't so I don't I don't understand why you would support Manchester United and not get behind Marcus Rashford. It's utterly bizarre to me. Yeah. Um, apparently, Kieran O'Hara. I didn't see this at all. Played for the Republic, so United's reserve keeper. Kieran O'Hara, uh, and they beat New Zealand 3-1. And when, when I actually saw that Republic of Ireland were playing New Zealand, I was like, hang on a minute, hasn't the World Cup just finished for egg chasing? But uh, apparently not. Um, and I think that's it for the international break in, in terms of United players. I mean, it's kind, of, it's kind of an interesting situation in the Euros overall. I mean, we've got one more round of games uh, some on Sunday, some uh, during the week, and that'll uh, that'll sort it all out. And uh, it, it's—I'm uh, sure people are well aware that this is uh, this is the first Euros that's not in a country, or since they were, it was called the European um, European Championships. Uh, it's going to be all over Europe, and then the semi-finals and final at Wembley. Yeah, I mean, all all England's group games are at Wembley as well. I think so. That's really um, it's going to it's a fantastic chance for them. I just have a little, a very brief kind of international football um, diversion from United related stuff. We t- touched on Gomez and Sterling earlier. What did, what did you think of the way Southgate handled that in general? I I, th- I thought he had a a number of different options, and it was interesting that he chose to be public about everything yeah. that had happened. I wonder whether that was a decision made in sort of consultation with the players, like he let them know that's what he was going to do and then did it or I want, it's an interesting one. Yeah. It seemed to me that that didn't have to happen like that. I mean, he could have just quietly dropped Sterling. I mean, there'd have been a load of questions, I suppose. Uh, but he could have said, this is an internal matter. Uh, maybe he didn't feel confident that he was able to do that without it all leaking out anyway. It's the information age, isn't it? It's very, it's the kind of the whole kind of like information wants to be free thing. It's, it is actually very difficult to keep secrets. And as Rebecca Vardy, as Rebecca Vardy's account has found out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I guess he, he had to do something. And I thought Raheem Sterling was fine. I mean, he, he's taken the blame entirely. I thought uh, I liked I liked what he said after Gomez got booed as well. He was like, "Yeah, that's right." But look, I'm 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 a hundred percent certain, and we d- we just don't know because we weren't there. Obviously, that it wasn't all one way. Right? Conflict is never just one way. Uh, I'm sure that Raheem didn't run across the canteen and lamp Gomez just for the sake of it. So, uh, but he's taken all of the blame. Fine, you know he's uh, he's obviously. Um, got a level of maturity that people in the press don't give him credit for. Well, they increasingly uh, in do, it. I think. Yeah. I think he's forced them to, basically. Um, so there you go. I mean, look, I mean, I'm sure he'll be back. He's going to start against Kosovo, so the, Southgate said. Uh, and and so it should all be and water under the bridge now. And conflict happens in football. I mean, we've seen it on the pitch before. Um, who was it, Graham Lasso and David Batty punching each other? They had to play in the team for many years after that. So Bowyer uh, and Dyer, um, of course, legendary. Good stuff. Yeah, best thing that uh, Kieran Dyer ever did, I think. The, um, the the thing I enjoyed most about the Sterling Gomez stuff was the number of people sharing. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but the still of Homer Simpson in bed looking absolutely furious with everyone saying, like, Raheem Sterling really did go to bed like this. And it, it was just an absolute joy because sterling definitely kept that beef alive for 24 hours i mean we haven't i guess i don't know if we recorded after the liverpool city game i think we did last time that's a as a that i suppose that is something that during the international break we should spare the listeners from having to think about liverpool and man city yes in fact let's do that let's let's not think about liverpool and city it's a bit miserable so I've certainly not seen uh, the usual sort of international break round of quotes coming out. I don't think Nemanja Matic has complained about being unhappy this week, although there were some transfer rumours linking him away with a move in January, um, which even though, you know, even though it's probably irresponsible to want Nemanja Matic gone, given that he's one of about two and a half midfielders at the club. Um, I listen if that's if that makes you irresponsible, call me irresponsible. Yeah, all right, irresponsible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a um, um, a thing that Duncan Castles wrote uh, about it, saying he wants away, and 
kind of positioning it as this is a, a disaster for United <laughs> and a symptom of the fact that United are on the decline. And I was like, hang on a minute, he's been rubbish. So I got into a discussion with Duncan on Twitter <gasps> about this. So I, I mean, no, he's, he's all right. He uh, he's he's pretty sound. I I um, I've swapped DMs with him quite a lot about stuff, but. Oh, he, look at me. I'm friends with Duncan I, Castles. I didn't say that. <laughs> I'm saying he will engage with yeah. people yeah, in reasonable in reasonable discussion. But Absolutely. I mean, like, I, and I, look, I think uh, my point is that we, and it's a very obvious one, is that let's challenge the assumption that Nemanja Matic is somehow important yeah. to United. He's definitely not, except if we get any more injuries and we do need bodies. Yeah. And, and and then we're in real trouble because so I, I'm sure the club will not allow that transfer to happen now unless someone's going to offer a load of money. But why would they for a 30 something year old with six months left on his contract? Uh, absolutely. They'll keep him until the summer and that'll be it. And, and we didn't hear, uh, talking of rounds of quotes, I don't think we heard anything from Paul Pogba, although he put out uh, some Instagram pictures of him and the family. He he put out a key, dodgy fashion, gotta say. A very <laughs> everything Paul Pogba wears is good. <laughs> um, uh, no, uh, the the one really great thing that Pogba did was post the 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 video of his cast being sawn off. So that's obviously fantastic news that Pogba's out of the cast, and you know, he'll still be... got quite a lot. I mean, only just now, so he won't be back until the December late December round of fixtures. I don't think. I mean, may, maybe they'll get him running. But he's got to do recovery work with the physio. Uh, he's got to get his fitness back up because it, it will have dropped off quite a lot, um, even if he's been doing cycling or swimming or other stuff that you can do in, while you've got a cast on. He's going to have to do straight line running and then twists and turns, jump, impact, all of that. Right? that, that is a, that's a lot of work. That's mm. a lot of work. As someone who trains a lot, that's a lot of work to recover from that. Um, and uh, as someone who's also had an ankle injury before, it really, really, especially soft t- tissue damage, it really, really easily goes bad again, really yeah. easily. Yeah. So, you know, we really, really hope for not just United's sake, but his genuinely like career wise, you, you want people to be really, really careful coming back from ankle injuries. The other the other newsy thing that happened was a lot of talk about Erling Braut Haaland, which yep. um, Erling Braut is a complete guess of how that's pronounced. Um uh I like it. It's a kind of refreshing beer with a <laughs> is that one? Um Alfinger Haaland's son isn't I know and apparently like not a fan of Manchester United in general but I'm sure he would uh he'd possibly change change that view if he uh if he does rock up at Old Trafford I mean it's not as if Roy Keane works at United <laughs> no I mean it, it would be a, a kind of lovely bookended narrative wouldn't it for Alfinger Haaland's son to come and play for United We'll, we'll see. I mean, the guy scores a phenomenal amount of goals. He's a very dynamic forward. I mean, I'm sure you've uh, all seen him in the Champions League. He he looks like a player who um, is going to find himself in a really elite bracket. It's hard, though, because he's playing in Austria, so he's not playing in a Tier 1 league at the moment. And when when that is the case, it's a bit of a gamble because it's going to be a step up for him. Sure. Wherever he goes next. I guess we've been talking quite a lot about, um, you know, the the James Madison principle, right? Buy them first. Don't let the other team buy them and then spend, you know, Maguire, Madison, we're going to... Pogba, no, (laughs) doesn't apply to Pogba. But, you know, that principle, it, it does seem like... I mean, Dan James, for example, we've gambled on Dan James at a reasonable amount of money rather than, you know, we've made the cheaper punt rather than the kind of effectively paying like tens of millions for him to be on loan at another Premier League club who might end up being better than us. So wouldn't want, like he wouldn't want to come to us anyway, like Leicester. Um, That's true. I, I mean, I just think that if you take that principle overall with your transfer strategy, you've just got to buy more players. Yes. Because the thing about buying yes. younger players 
who are hopefully going to turn into really class players is they don't always do that, do Absolutely. they? Absolutely. No, I, this is completely correct. And this was Fergie's transfer strategy for a long period of his career was to make numerous punts on 15 to 20 million pound players, you know, Anderson, Nani, these were, these were the, that was that era. I mean, Ronaldo, I mean, it was a fairly sure bet, but only fairly sure. You know, we saw, we saw Ronaldo have a season and a half of struggles in the Premier League, didn't we? Before, before it all came together. And um, the one thing that I wanted to say about Haaland, though, is I've seen a lot of the response to it seems to be about, well, we don't need another forward. And that's where, but I mean, we do if again like you can't just have the players in the first 11 there's nobody apart from mason who you know is a kid and and it's fine that he's being rotated in and out there's nobody like missing out on minutes because united have got martial and rashford and and james like we need you want at least one more especially if he's multifunctional you know to give it the old van hal yeah so we we can't get consistency out of martial he's also a bit injury prone Marcus Rashford is performing better coming off the left at the moment. That might not always be his role, and I'm sure he'd much rather be playing through the centre, uh, but it's an awful lot of pressure on a younger player. Uh, and, you know, his uptick in form has come coincided with him moving back to the left when Martial is coming to the team, at least partly coincided. I think there's an awful lot of sense in United buying another forward. I don't know whether it's going to happen in January or not. I mean, it's unusual, but we've signed some big players in January over the past few years. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, absolutely. But I just I just wanted to address the idea that we don't need another forward. I, I don't think that's accurate. I wouldn't say it's the squad's biggest need by any stretch of the imagination. But if, if there's a deal that can be done that works, then I don't think we should not buy them because because we've got too many forwards. Because we just I just don't think we have. You keep saying that Martial's not been consistent, but as a centre forward, like Really and truly, he has not been that inconsistent. I do. I think a lot of the inconsistency. The the one thing that is a key issue is stay. He's got to stay fit for a long period of time. That's that's absolutely vital. But he basically scores a lot of goals when we play him at centre forward. You know, yeah. basically. Um, the only other news thing that I can think of uh, is Tahith Chung. And uh, lots of talk that I think Juventus maybe was the the club mentioned. Lots of talk that he's uh, not going to sign a new contract at United, and United probably going to lose out on Taif Chong. Yeah, it seems like. I mean, we we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? So he's he's had a contract in the summer. United will get some development money, but it won't be very much if he does leave. And uh, he, uh, or at least his agent, said he wants a. Yeah, the right kind of contract. Well, that's about money, and then a sporting plan. So here's our plan to get you into the team. Now, I think anyone who's seen Tae Chong, he's not played an awful lot for United this season, but he doesn't seem like he's ready. And I think part of that sporting plan really should be a loan away. I mean, if he's going to go to Juventus, he's not going straight into that team. You know, this is very successful Juve side. He's he's going to get loaned out somewhere else. So so that's what they do in Italy because they don't really have reserve football in the same way. So. Um, we'll see. I mean, it would be a shame, but it, it, I don't think with Chong, there's a guarantee that he's going to be a, become a top class player. It would be a loss. The other one, of course, who's out of contract in the summer, and we've talked about a fair bit, is is Angel Gomez. Um, he played this week again. I think he got two assists and a goal or something, didn't he, for one of the England under 20s? I have or no idea. Like I haven't seen that. Actually, I mean, I, I, I forgot to check that up again, but, um, he, you know, and and again, there he's not quite ready for the big time, but a huge amount of talent, and it would be a huge shame to lose out on him. But this is, you know, I I feel like a, I'm definitely a broken record, but these are the kind of things that a director of football makes sure don't happen. Yeah, and and you know, we all know this has happened all along. This is not a new phenomenon. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people said Pogba wouldn't get football if he went to Juventus, and uh, but I don't think it's as evident that Chong's ready for the big time as it was evident that Pogba was ready for the big time when when he moved to Juventus. Like I think it looked like he was a lot closer to being ready. And also looked a lot more like he was a player that we needed in the first team. I mean, I, I, Chung has not impressed when he's played at the senior level. Now, that doesn't mean bin him off, he's rubbish, because of course it doesn't mean that. Um, but it's it's a hard balance to strike. And if he's not happy with the idea of going out on loan, 
certainly, then then there's not much we can do about that, is there? Okay, so that's the news. Uh, we both watched uh, Busby, which is a new uh, documentary about Sir Matt's life and his time at Manchester United, covering an awful lot of uh, decades from um, the same team that brought us the class of 92. Um, in, a, in a second, we got an interview I did with Joe Perlman, who's the director. Uh, also did uh, the Bross documentary, which many of you saw. Um, and there's some uh, stylistic similarities between the two, let's just say. Uh, but before um, before we get on to that interview, what did you think of the, the film? Because uh, you saw it as well. Yeah, I'm so jealous that you talked to Joe Perlman, but it's probably good because if I'd talked to him, there'd have been an awful lot of questions about the Bross documentary and probably not so many about the Busby documentary. Um, I thought it was... It is, a phenomenal film. I mean, it is an absolutely excellent film. I, there was definitely stuff in it that I didn't know because I'm not massively a student of United's history. Um, I, I, you know, obviously I know the big beats, but um, not got that kind of encyclopedic knowledge of what happened and when. And certainly that the, that first. I mean, we kind of know the story, don't we? That there, there was the the first team that he built. He started to very quickly want to build from you know going a new scouting network and going around the country and getting the best young talents and we all know of course what happened i mean i think the structure of it is it's kind of perfect you've got a very brief touch on his early life you've got um that that first united team he built and then the kind of quick rebuild and some of the motivation behind that and then of course a very long elegant heartbreaking uh, exploration of the personal cost of the Munich disaster. And yeah. it's very, um, there's, there's something very light touches. The, the, there's a lot done by kind of implication. It's not, it doesn't say, you know, oh, Matt Busby was left brokenhearted by this, but you see the man he was before and the man he was after. You see how much it cost him. And and watching it, you know, we all know about Munich. I know I talk about it. I think I talked about this at the last anniversary, but we all know about Munich. But um, <clears throat> sorry, when you consider the reality of it, it's so overwhelming that that this was a real thing that happened. You know, we we like Bobby Charlton. Like we've we've even joked on this program about how grumpy Bobby Charlton is with people, and you just think, well. This man lived through an unimaginable tragedy. It's an unimaginable... That happened in our lives. We'd likely never be the same again, you know. So anyway, that was beautifully handled. And then it kind of talks about the the rebuild and a lot of love and attention given to Jimmy Murphy's role. And, you know, then then yeah. it ends with the kind of emergence of George Best and then the and then the uh, the succession. And I think I think that's a, a, a very well chaptered and elegant film. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I, I thought the use of music and graphics and talking heads throughout the film gave it a nice pace uh, for a lot of material that for a lot of United fans will feel old. I mean, you know, there wasn't anything particularly revelatory no. in this. And, and I think it'd be very hard to, to come up with a documentary about Busby that suddenly got some new insight. I mean, he's, he's kind of famously recluse, wasn't he? He wasn't a man in the public eye. But there's... Um, at, there's least, a, at least in the way that he he was talking to journalists and the media all the time, a lot. But there's a lot of new material uh, that they found from archive. And um, I, I just, just thought, I mean, there's obviously a, a huge community of United fans who won't be that engaged with this and haven't didn't live through it and might not have watched all the DVDs and read all the books uh, like I did when I was younger. And, and I think for them, um, this is, you know, in an hour and a half, very neatly wraps up sort of three decades of or four decades of uh, Matt Busby's influence on the club. So, and it, and it's, look, it looks beautiful as well. And they, uh, you know, as I said, the, the graphics, the talking heads in a very particular Perlman style um, all worked really well together. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, even though, you know, he wasn't a, a, that public a figure, he was on Parkinson and these kinds of things. And there's a lot of first person account. And it really works beautifully, I think, because it's, it's kind of subtly challenged first person account. It's not all just, you know, that there is 
there is the narrative of that uh, you know he's he's not a, just a it's not a simple story it's not a hagiography that's for sure you know it's it's it does allow for some nuance and 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 as you say it's not for although a lot of the people that watch it will be united obsessives they'll be pleased enough by the pacing and the kind of story you know there's plenty in it for a united obsessive just a well told version of that story and then for people that don't have the in-depth beat by beat knowledge it's going to be a massive education too because you got we got to think like we are if you're 20 years younger than us even that's another kind of generation removed from the story and and you're almost more likely to be reading books about Cantona and that era and stuff that we lived through than then going back that next that next level so anyway i talked to joe perlman the director this week and uh, i didn't have all our recording equipment so it might not sound awesome it'll sound okay he was down the line uh, and i was in a uh, uh, an office meeting room which may be a bit echoey hopefully it's okay here you go yeah joe first congrats on the film i got a chance to watch it didn't didn't uh, get the chance to come to the premiere uh, this week but um i had the blu-ray and uh, i thought it was a really beautifully put together film um, and, and I guess the first thing is it's a pretty familiar story, at least for Manchester United fans. You know, you know Rise, uh, the Babes, Munich Disaster, European Cup, sort of his ultimate retirement and, and failure, I guess. And, and, and so what inspired you to, to tell that story again and in the way you did it? Um, I think, uh, you know, I was uh, working at a company called Full Well 73 for the guys who did Class 92, and I was very lucky to um, to to... I was much younger, but I was very lucky to be a part of that film um, early on. And it uh, always felt like a part of the story that uh, fascinated me. I mean, Samat Busby is someone who, you know, personifies an era, but not just that, is is incredibly important to how football runs to this day. Um, and it's just uh, with the kind of resilience and the comebacks and all that kind of things, it just felt like a beautiful story that uh, um, I had a great opportunity to make something truly cinematic. Um, and yeah, it just felt like the time to retell that story. Yeah, it certainly feels like a, a very cinematic way in which you've put it together. I thought the the archival footage, and I think there's some original footage that hasn't been seen before in there with the graphics and the, the music certainly gave it um, something more than just your traditional sort of biopic or documentary feel to it. Did, did you have any particular challenges in making it? Was there something you were looking looking for and setting out to achieve at the beginning that was difficult? Um, I think the biggest challenge for us setting off was how how could we could find archive that um, people hadn't seen before. And there's a, you know an enormous wealth of archive out there on Pathé and all these different places mm-hmm. that uh, that I, I think the most Man United fans have probably seen. Um, so the kind of aim from the start was where can we find the additional footage to make this film um, kind of as much archive as we can and to make it original. So we uh, we were very, had an amazing archive um, producing team and we were able to track down some incredible bits of footage from Argentina, Brazil, America, from some of the preseason tours that the Babes and also the 60s teams actually went on. And um, some of that footage is in the film, and, and, and I'm incredibly proud that we were able to do that. Yeah, and, and I guess for a modern generation of supporter, the uh, ability to sort of interact with that is limited. I mean, we have wall-to-wall coverage of football in every channel you can possibly think of today, but that wasn't the case at the time. Uh, and and I thought one of the interesting things you managed to do with the film was to bring to life that actually they didn't have the same kind of coverage at the time and um, and connecting with the club and the stories uh, around the club were, was um, often in, in a very sort of more limited way. And I was kind of interested in the way that you used some of the talking heads in the film and, and some of the characters from that time and um, very particular style uh, of interview that you were looking for there what what sort of inspired that um well i mean across most of my films i have a particular style of doing um, kind of interviews straight down the line with the characters um the uh, protagonist looking straight into the camera and i feel that it creates a really nice um kind of more intimate experience for the viewer um so it was something that we definitely wanted to deliver on this and we knew that you know it's been it had been a while since a lot of these players had spoken about some map um, and um, it just felt like an amazing opportunity to kind of uh, to dig a bit deeper and, and to hear a few more stories from these from these incredible characters. And a few of them came to your uh, um, premiere on Monday night. I saw from some of the images. 
Yes, yeah, yeah, quite. I think uh, almost almost everyone we interviewed was actually there, which was amazing to get them all there. And there's, there's an incredible photo of all of them together on the red carpet. And I think that you know it was a uh, it was if anything it was an amazing experience for them to get back together. I think they absolutely loved it, and they all came up to us after the film and were thanking us for putting it on, and also thanking us for giving them an opportunity to see each other. Yeah. So Matt was sort of famously private uh, and didn't spend a lot of time doing interviews. There's, there's some you have in the film. Um, didn't live his life in public, I guess. Was it difficult to find new angles and insight on, on him as a person as well as a manager? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the the biggest focus for us in this film was to let Sir Matt tell his own story. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of initially it was about digging through archive and finding all of the interviews that we had with Sir Matt. But then we were extremely lucky that also the people we were interviewing, uh, mainly Paddy Barkley and, and Roy Cav, they gave us some of the um, interview tapes that they had done when they'd been researching the autobiographies and biographies of Sir Matt. So we actually, in the film, there are interviews that people have actually never heard before. Um, and that was something that was really exciting. And there's a few moments in the film where it's very clear that they, these are, you know, audio recordings from years ago with Matt being um, as open and as genuine as I think you'll ever hear it. Yeah. I mean, Paddy Barclay's involvement is interesting because, of course, he's, he's spent many years um, writing about Sir Alex and, and the club and so has a pretty intimate knowledge of the club. Did that allow you to sort of distance yourself from making this a fans film? Because I, I, I imagine there's... Um, there's a tension here between something that tells the real inside story, and some of this is tragic, of course, and, and telling something that's, um, that gets down to the, the real truth of what was happening at the time. Of, of course. Well, you know, as, as uh, someone who doesn't support Man United, mm -hmm. um, I feel like it was actually possibly an easier task for me because there was no bias. I was going into this completely open, um, you know, no opinions about current Manchester United or any of those types of things. So there wasn't, you know, there wasn't going to be some sort of uh, any sort of bias towards this. It was it was actually, you know, I was fascinated by the man. And I think that the the best documentaries are films that transcend the topic. So this isn't a film about Manchester United. This isn't a film about sport. This is about an incredible man who personified a period of time. And as a result, led to kind of what Manchester is today and equally, you know, what the football club is today and, and also what kind of manage, managerial styles and all that kind of thing exist today. So um, it was, uh, I think we've really achieved that. This is not just a film for sports fans or Man United fans. This is a film for people who, who love to kind of uh, understand the character from the past and try to immerse themselves in a period that maybe um, they, weren't, uh, they weren't around for. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a, an interesting theme, really. Busby, Ferguson, Shankly Paisley, Wenger, Herbert Chapman, these sort of dynastic era managers who... Um, uh, managed their club for decades and, and won all the trophies. I'm not sure we'll ever see that again. I mean, do, do you think there's a way we'll tell the story of modern managers that's, that's going to be different than this? I think it, I think it will be totally different. I think um, I, I don't think there will be... Uh, there was not going to be another Sir Matt Busby. There's not going to be another Shankly. It just doesn't... It doesn't exist in the way that modern sport and modern football um, has played out over the years. And it's something that Matt even talks about in the film, you know, after one of the interviews that one of the first interviews he gives after Munich, he talks about football being a business now. It's not about sport. You know, for the first half of the film, pre-Munich, he's talking about sport and enjoyment and the fans and all that kind of stuff. And then suddenly he starts talking about it as a business. And I think that that actually marks a very clear turning point, not just in Matt's life, but also in the, in, in the life of football itself. And that I think that um, as a result of that, the, uh, the, the world will never see characters like this again. Yeah, I, I thought it was a really uh, interesting piece in the film where he talks about, or the, the film talks about, um, his role in keeping wages down at Old Trafford. And, and then you suddenly get this feeling that Matt, although he had sort of one arm, metaphoric arm around his squad because they were the, the babes and they were his players and he felt emotionally attached to them, but he also felt attached, he felt a responsibility at the club to... Um, to make the club finances work. So I thought that was kind of fascinating uh, uh, contrast between the two sides of the man. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, Samat is uh, he's one of the simplest and most difficult people to understand. Um, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's an incredibly friendly father figure, all those types of things. And on the other side, he's ruthless. He's an incredible businessman. You know, his past made him who he became. Um, and I think that uh, I hope that people coming out of the other side of this film will understand a bit more about the man and why he made the decisions he made. Yeah. One of the things about Busby, of course, is his length of tenure. And there's just so much that happened over those 
more than well nearly 25 years he was at Manchester United and longer in a in a sort of up in the boardroom capacity so how did you decide what to keep and what to discard what was sort of obvious and what was new um I think that I think the most one of the big things for us was to kind of put him at the forefront of each era so you know post post uh, World War II Britain you have the color of Manchester United, the color of the Busby Babes and that kind of thing. And then the 60s, equally, he personifies the time with George Best and this incredible youthfulness that comes in again. Um, and I think it was, it was important to play on that. I think that youthfulness is a real, that was real uh, focus of, of, of this film. And, you know, um, understanding that Matt lost his father when he was so young and also mm-hmm. his uncle and all the kind of male father figures in his life um, and, and essentially took control of the family, went down the mines to, to earn money so that the family could live. Um, and then kind of made all the decisions he made when he finally got into the place of responsibility and into Manchester United. Um, it, it all kind of leads back to that. And I think that um, it was important for us to show a bit of the, the foreshadowing of what his um, kind of formative experiences meant and, and led to. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think it, it kind of ties in nicely with, with what I was talking about earlier about his, his then role as the you know, from young manager to becoming the father figure of the club and, and feeling responsible for more than just what was happening on the on the pitch. Um, I mean, I guess there's an interesting contrast with Ferguson and, and Ferguson doesn't really appear in this film. Um, was, it, was that a conscious decision? That, no, not that... at all. We would have absolutely loved to have Sir Alex in the film, but unfortunately our, uh, our schedules just didn't work out. Uh, okay. I mean, Ferguson, of course, has his um, his story. Do you want to tell us that story one day do you, do you think there's anything you can add <laughs> uh if, if i was given the opportunity to tell that story it'd be an absolute honor but um yeah that's all i had to say uh i'm sure he's a man in demand Pro- probably he wants I'm to sure tell his no own doubt. way knowing ferguson yeah yeah i have no doubt um so um the the movie's out uh you had the premiere this week on monday and uh, it's out on what blu-ray dvd and, and streaming yes. um yes on the 18th is it is gonna is it gonna have a cinematic release or it's it's uh it's it's um, uh, no i think it's but... just going just on digitals i think there might be a few screenings popping up so if people look at busby.film over the next few weeks i think there'll be a few um hopefully a few cinema screenings popping up but available everywhere from monday great and and um, uh, yeah, I really encourage people to to, to go and uh, download that one. I I, uh, I personally really enjoyed it, and um, and I think oh, what's it, ninety minutes or so uh, flew by. Um, and as someone who's uh, obviously been a long-time fan and uh, historian yeah. of the club, I, I I once wrote about half a book on the uh, history of uh, <laughs> the financial history of Manchester United without finishing it. But um, I, I really. Uh, Found something new coming out of this film. Amazing! Thank you so much. Uh, so, so what, what's next for you? Um, uh, another uh, another documentary on uh, pop or uh, doing <laughs> football again? Uh, we're actually moving back to uh, back to music for a little bit. Next film is about music. I can't talk about it too much um, yet, but uh, yeah, next film will be back to music for a bit. Great. Um, well, look, thanks uh, thanks for joining us on uh, Rankcast again um, out this week. Busby. Um, tells the story of Busby from uh, from the 40s to the 70s, uh, and I guess everyone knows what happened after that. Um, and, and and as you said, sort of beautiful and cinematic. Um, lots of interviews with um, characters from the time, new archive, archival footage, and and uh, I thought one of the things in this film was the kind of the music. Actually, and we didn't talk about that much, but the, it's used in a very sort of dramatic way and, and uh, helps elevate the film from being um, what could be sort of a TV documentary to something bigger. Um, yeah, absolutely. We had an unbelievable composer on this film um, called Chris Rowe, who's extremely talented. Um, it was an absolute pleasure to work with him. And, you know, early on we were talking about how we could kind of give that um, feeling of a man apart to Matt and then what kind of themes that we could play on. And funnily enough, a big one was... Uh, it was Bernard Herrmann and Taxi Driver was one of our big references okay. to music on this. Um, and, uh, and, and I feel like we really delivered on giving it, you know, an interesting pace and also kind of a, an almost a, a foreboding and a sense of doom early on um, that kind of with, with Munich on the horizon when we're talking about um, the, the babes, I think there's a, there's a definite feeling of some, of, of some sort of impending, uh, impending doom along with it, which is something we were really focused on. Yeah, it certainly gives that. And uh, uh, who knew there were uh, 
less than six degrees of separation between uh, taxi driver and Samantha. <laughs> it can be a small world somewhere. Um, exactly. Joe, again, thank you very much. And um, uh, this is um, this is a really uh, fascinating insight into the film and, and how you produced it. And uh, again, everyone go watch. Congrats. Thank you so much. All right. So that's Busby. Um, I, I, we saw a few old faces at the uh, premiere, which was uh, last Monday in Manchester. Um, I do encourage everyone to to go and download this. It's available on the the Busby Film website. I don't think it's on Netflix or any other services just yet, or um, DVD and Blu-ray. Um, what are we talking about next, Paul? I guess we should take questions from the listeners. Oh, we... are there any good ones that aren't about um, our uh, royal family? Um, there, there are there are some excellent questions this week. I thought, and and a lot of them. Um, given i suppose the time of year and a lot of the questions are always about this but i do think it's the time of year where we we can afford to talk about it the november international break signing seems a a, a logical conversation um at Quachit asking about whether we really need harland or uh, asking whether it's better to concentrate on sancho a, a a central attacking midfielder and a couple of cms well um there is no chance on this god's green earth that it's a it's a discussion where we either concentrate on Haaland or Sancho. I mean, Sancho is is I would describe it as like somewhat of a pie in the sky signing at this point. Certainly in January, it'd be ballistically unusual if we were to sign Jaden Sancho. Yeah, especially given some of Borussia's uh, Dortmund's trouble at the moment. Yeah, not just in European football, but domestically as well. Coach under pressure. Why would they do it? Sancho, of course, was left out of the team, publicly criticised and substituted after half an hour recently. So this is why some of their stories have come up um, that, uh, I mean, it may well even be his people suggesting that he's got options. And of course he's got options. He he could probably pick from a a few of Europe's top clubs because he's been an outstanding performer in the Bundesliga for the last couple of seasons. And he would be an outstanding signing for United, you know straight into the team and would add huge amounts of value. And he would also be a nine-figure signing, I assume. So, you know, a hell of a lot of money. Uh, Let's see what happens in the summer. I think uh, that's much more likely and when a lot of people will be chasing his signature. And of course, to to kind of finish up the answer to the question, a number 10 and a central midfielder are the things that we most need, in my opinion, particularly a central midfielder, uh, depending in a, in a way on like what Pogba's recovery is, because Pogba fulfills one of those roles beautifully, you know, um, not, I don't think we would want him to play as a number, number 10, number 10, but um, a very advanced number eight would be beautiful to, to have Pogba there. Yeah. Yeah, um, and if somehow Fred and McTominay and Pogba becomes an effective three, you still need cover desperately, and that's a huge if anyway. Um, so <laughs> a question here, which is I'm not on the same theme at Busby Babes MU says I'm not convinced we need another young forward in the form of Haaland, a senior experienced player that's not expected to play every game is what we need. How about Sosha, player manager 2020? No, <laughs> oh, geez, yeah. Um, I'm sure he's still got it in the training field, but uh, not on the pitch in the Premier League. Yeah. Uh, Mika Latonen says Finland just qualified for the men's international tournament for the first time, which has been great. I, I'm assuming Mika Latonen is from Finland. Um, friend of the show asked a few questions. Uh, what is your favourite international football memory? Well, I mean, I guess, I mean, if it's if it's about England, uh, it, it's going to be some old ones. I have to say, I, I fully enjoyed the 1990 World Cup, um, and I have fleeting memories of the 86 World Cup. I mean, I have pretty good memories. It's a long time ago now, and I was like 10 or something. So you paid. Um, a, you, I can I can I can confirm the list for the listeners that you did pay forensically close attention to the 1986 World Cup. Ed. <laughs> Yeah, 1990 was the one where I, you know, I think I really, um, really remember loads of it and uh, got caught up in what was happening. Yeah, so um, I mean, England-wise, uh, yeah, the, the 90 Euro '96 would be my favourite England-related memories. That Holland game, uh, but my favourite international football memories are mostly about France. Um, the '98 World Cup was just unbelievable. It's just a phenomenal World Cup, anyway. And then the last World Cup was incredible. 
as a World Cup generally. It was like a brilliant tournament. And then France were the best team in it by miles and miles and miles and miles. They won with the handbrake on in the end. Uh, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that. But, not, you know... Zid- they had the handbrake on for the whole tournament. It's yeah, just it, how they play under Deschamps. Exactly, that's what I mean. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, two other memories of France against Brazil. I think both in quarterfinals... Um, right. Oh no, maybe it was. I can't remember if it was the quarterfinal. One might have been the semi-final. Yeah, yeah. The penalty shootout. Yeah, nineteen eighty-six. That that game is one of the. It's up there with the game I talk about all the time. Uh, Tottenham three, Man United three. The game that I had on videotape, just watched over and over and over again. That's the nineteen eighty-six uh, World Cup quarterfinal between France and Brazil, and then the two thousand and six. I think that was the semi-final. The Z- the Zidane game where yeah. Zidane yeah, played yeah. as well as any humans ever played football. That, this is the one where uh, Ronaldo was mysteriously ill before the game. No, right? that's the final of oh, the ninety eight. So yeah, 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 yeah that's ninety eight. Yeah, of course, Ronaldo would have been forty something. Um, yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, I, I think as I've got older, I've paid less and less attention to international football. I, I did kind of enjoy last summer's world cup and we talked about it a lot we did some specials it was entertaining um in the end a a pretty limited england side did better than anyone expected so yeah, through no. set pieces and penalty shootouts it was a it was the the nicest thing about the 2018 world cup wasn't really the football it was the kind of unifying effect of the team and the fact that it was a team that celebrated kind of youth and diversity and that Southgate seemed like a decent fella and that was a real tonic for what was kind of going on in the country and what still is very much going on in the country so Wiser says Gary Neville keeps mentioning uh, the core being important in developing a team like the class of 92 having uh, Keane, Cantona, Schmeichel, Bruce etc who do you think United should target to improve our core for the youngsters to develop? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's, I mean, I think it's a fair point. It's a much better point than his uh, other thing that he said this week, Gary Neville, which was fully in support of the Glazers. We'll come on to that in a second, shall we? I, I think the central midfielder, as we mentioned, uh, and I think an experienced defensive midfielder would make a... If we were buying one player right now, um, if we're developing, there's more players needed, but that would be the biggest boost. I'd be tempted to go and uh, slap 60, 50 or 60 million pounds uh, down on Leicester's table for our first purchase of many from Leicester and, and get Wilfred Ndidi. He's, I mean, he's not super experienced, uh, but he's performing great in that role in the Premier League. He would slot straight into United to be awesome. I, I'm assuming uh, Angola Kante is not available uh, right now. <laughs> Um, and I, I think that would be a huge uh, purchase and, you know, maybe partly a down payment on James Madison, who will follow next summer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, uh, if we are really fantasy booking here, then um, then I think a player like Kante would be absolutely perfect. Um, and I, I don't think... Or you could also argue that a, a very sort of dominant um van dyke-esque defender playing alongside Maguire would would help the the team a lot but I don't even next, I don't, next summer yeah yeah I don't I know think, who that I is right. I don't I don't really know who that is I, I always find it difficult to answer the questions of of which player where because I, I I don't pay forensic attention to football around the world so um but I, I would if I was if it's fantasy um I'd sign Milan Skriniar although he's uh, the inter defender who's um who, who's really high quality you know he can mix it and pass it he didn't have a great game when United played um, Inter over the summer. I think a lot of people wrote him off. People who don't watch football very much, or at least non-English football, wrote him off as a result. Um, but uh, he'd be great. He doesn't want to leave. He just signed a new contract last summer. So it's uh, it seems a non-goer. Um, so let's talk about why Gary Neville's ban from the rank cast has been extended for another six months. Um, I Very few people on this planet wind me up as much as Gary Neville because like obviously there's lots of many 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 people on the planet who are worse than Gary Neville um, but there is something about his brand of blustery certainty when he is literally factually incorrect that that drives me up the wall the right so so give us a rundown of of what he said about the Glazer ownership and and in particular yeah. United fans protests at the Glazer ownership. Yeah, so he was he was very dismissive about uh United supporters protests about the Glazers and said, "Hey, look, look at that time between 2006 and 2012. 
I think he used that time frame, something like that. Uh, when we were winning all these trophies, you didn't see any protests then. Of course, 2010 was the very height of the green and gold protests. And that was shortly after the uh, prospectus came out for United's first um, uh, first bond launch. People looked at that prospectus, understood the prospectus, and saw that United were getting loaded with even more debt. Uh, and they protest- protested about that. And of course... Um, uh, you know, many, many of us who are, you know, very anti-Glazer and have always spoken out about it are frustrated that United fans' uh, protests aren't stronger when the team is winning and it seems to go in cycles um, with the team losing. Of course, that's what people focus on most, and um, and it's frustrating they aren't um, they they aren't as vocal even when the team's doing well. And that's a good thing about that period, 2010. The team was doing well just come off another Champions League final um, and uh, and people still wanted the Glazers out. So, yeah, Neville was completely wrong um, and he's completely wrong about many things associated with the Glazers. And, and sometimes, and I hate to sound really cynical, but I, I don't half feel that you could just follow the money and work out where Neville's opinion about the club is coming from. I mean, he, he and the Glazers are now have a shared financial interest in some co-sponsors, you know? So... He has a deal with Marriott. So, funnily enough, United have a deal. And and maybe that's being too cynical. Maybe it's just about Neville being a blowhard. And it's just about Neville not wanting to criticise the owners because he thinks down the line somewhere there may be a commercial or a, you know, a job interest for him. Um, but, 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 but he was very wrong on this one. And I think generally speaking, he refuses to use his platform um, to criticise the Glazers, and it's pretty inexplicable, honestly. Yeah, and last year he was when Mourinho was on the verge of getting sacked. He was going on about you know the structure of the club and all this kind of stuff, but he wasn't really focused on the ownership. It was more like you know Woodward is bad sort of thing. If these rumours are to be believed, I remember that that whole rant. I mean, to talk briefly about 2010, you said the exact key thing this was a hundred percent in reaction to the prospectus united were champions as you say they'd been in the champions league final the previous season and the single moment that was the pinnacle of the anti-glazer process at manchester united was a four nil champions league quarter final win over ac milan so you can oh god it drives me up the wall and i think um you can be even if the uh, the mutual interest, the sort of exact follow the money, almost conspiracy level thing about this isn't right, or and even if it's not because he's got half an eye on a job with United in the future, it's because he's a commercially minded football team owner now, you know, and he's they're in partnership with Peter Lim doing what they do, so he's in that world and he's he's that he's in a bubble, and and it's fine to be in a bubble. It doesn't make you a bad person to be rich and successful, and you know that's that's not a correlation, but it does make it absolutely outrageous when you're the most, you're probably the single most listened to voice about Manchester United, and you are literally, literally lying. You know, I mean, um, or more accurately, sorry, you're literally factually inaccurate. Because maybe he was, maybe it was an error rather than a lie. But either way, yeah. it's bang out of order. Scott from the Republic of Mancunia tweeted a load of pictures of Gary Neville with a bunch of green and gold scarves behind him <laughs> playing for United. I mean, he literally played through this period. Yeah, so it, it's a it's a very interesting um, selective memory from Neville there. Olaf Halesmo says, booze or beer to drown the pain after the loss against Sheffield United. Well, very cynical there, Olaf. And booze. All beer, aren't they the same thing? No, this is, is beer. Beer is like a soft drink, isn't it? It's you know, the American. Real booze. It's an American thing where, like, um, alcohol means what we would call spirits in the UK. Um, I guess that's the question. It's a, a spirits or beer question. The answer is, of course, neither. Because don't try and drown your pain with alcohol. Alcohol's a depressant of the Shh. central nervous system. No, no, no. It helps you forget it for a while, and then you can move on. So, <laughs> I just just mix mix and match. I'd say, mate, it's, it'll get you there quicker. 
just to be neurologically accurate, though, it is literally harder to move on when you've got alcohol in your brain. Um, uh, th- we've got questions targeted at different people here. That that one was definitely for you. Um, at one, Matt Viney says, which wrestler would Paul bring in to give a team talk or press conference instead of Ole to rally the players to stop a lacklustre performance? Uh, it sort of depends what you want, really. I think if you want a sort of friendly arm around the shoulder, then and and especially if we can have living or dead, which you kind of need to have when you're talking about wrestlers because so many of them are dead. Um, it's got to be the American dream, Dusty Rhodes. You know, it's we talk about Busby. One of the one of the things that almost everyone knows about Samat is this prince, this kind of fundamental working class principle that football is sh- has an obligation to be entertaining because people work hard all week um, and then they they deserve to be entertained when they come to the football. And I think that Dusty Rhodes is absolutely the man to deliver that message to to the people. All right. Very good. Um, We need to deliver a message to the people. And that's our in-depth analysis of Sheffield United. What do you know about Sheffield United, Paul? Uh, Hey, uh, overlapping (laughs) centre-backs. I know know fancy things. Everyone knows fancy things about overlapping centre-backs. Yeah, I mean, they are doing absolutely extraordinarily well i don't think they've lost a game away from home yet this season they were very unlucky or at least um very close to not losing the game they did lose at home they they've been they have been genuinely a bit of a revelation in this league and i don't think i don't think anyone quite saw that coming certainly not to the extent that but they you know they're fifth in the league this season they've only lost um, three games all season, so yeah, they're, they're they're doing phenomenally well. They are, and it's it's based on a very sound defence. They've just conceded the nine in the league. They don't score very many goals, which has been their problem. I mean, their top scorer is Lis Mousset, who and well, and John Lundstrom. Um, Mousset doesn't play every game at all, um, and and like their second top scorer, and he's got three goals. Sorry, uh, and their second top scorer is a couple of people with one goal. So. They're definitely struggling to score. That's unsurprising. I, I think the fact that they've been so tight at the back um, is the thing that's uh, you know kept them up the league. I mean, you don't concede goals, you win games, don't you? Uh, and and it'll certainly be interesting. I'm sure they will approach this game in a manner that is um, uh, much better than our last couple of um, uh, victims uh, who we smashed, <laughs> who played in this kind of Brighton and Norwich to some extent. Um, and uh, the Europa League game uh, where everyone played far too open. And, you know, you'd be tight against United and, and United have problems. And I'm sure Sheffield United will do exactly that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I said before the Brighton game that um, that Potter is probably a smart enough manager to to sit back, but they were kind of taken apart early by a by a kind of an unlucky bounce of the ball basically and then they were in a very different position so I you know if United score early then I mean us Manchester United if we score early then of course they'll have to open up a little bit but that that's not going to be their starting point I mean you mentioned the 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 numbers of goals scored and conceded you have to go down to uh 12th in the league to find a team that scored fewer goals than them but you have to go up to second in the league to for, they're one of only two teams to be in single figures for goals conceded this right, season. Yeah. Um, and, that yeah. you know, United have only scored three more goals than them. I mean, obviously, we could say we've been struggling to score, but, you know, we scored four against Chelsea and three against Norwich and three again against Brighton. So the, our goals have come in very condensed bursts, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, what, a couple of interesting other points with Sheffield United. Ravel Morrison is in the squad, although he's only played. Uh, you know, he, he had one substitute parent. I, ha- I, so. I. If you could see my face right now, listeners, I am a hundred percent shocked about this. I had zero yeah. idea. That's incredible news. Well, he spent about a year in Mexico at Atlas uh, playing uh, Mexican football. So he actually first time in his career, really, he's had a, a string of um, string of uh, appearances all in a row. He's come back to England. Uh, he's not making it in the Sheffield United side right at the moment. Um, and so I wouldn't expect him to uh, be playing in this game. The other the other thing to consider when we're thinking about uh, the game is, of course, United are desperately short of midfielders. No Pogba and um, McSauce is, I presume, still injured. Didn't play for Scotland. Scotland's win against Cyprus. Um, hobbled off, looks pretty bad, although I don't think we've had a real update 
as of as of recording about how long he's out for. So we're going to be super short in midfield. Probably seeing the Manu Matic as a result, I imagine Matic and Fred. Well, Matic you know, dynamic too. Matic is is technically on the injury list, isn't he? So um, that's. I mean, I, I think you know Physio Room is saying that this is his his potential return date. So you know that that could be like possible but yeah McTominay is definitely not going to play is he because you don't go over on your ankle like that and then play in the next game that's that would be that'd be crazy so yeah Matic and Fred with Pereira in front of them now now we are starting to look at a team that is cruising for a bruising like if we end up with a midfield three which we absolutely might I would go so far as to say at this point we probably will of Matic, Fred and and Pereira. Fred's transformation into a latter-day Kevin De Bruyne is going to have to really ramp up a bit for us to have any chance in this game at that point because it doesn't matter what the rest of the team does if that's the middle of it. That's right. Uh, It's going to be really difficult for United and, uh, I mean, against a promoted side. It really shouldn't be like this, uh, but we're away from home. Uh, Maybe I'd, I'd imagine Solskjaer will set it up to try and contain and break. Uh, like, what else are we going to do? What else are we going to do? Your classic. It's, uh, it's, it's going to be a difficult afternoon for sure. Yeah, and and you know the the one hope is that um we they are catchable on the break. Um, they do they do leave some space in behind, although they they're very well drilled. I mean, you know, Chris Wilder is getting all the plaudits in the world at the moment. There's almost nothing original you can say about this, except I guess if there are those of you out there that haven't paid any attention at all to Sheffield United so far this season, what Chris Wilder has done at that club is genuinely remarkable. I mean, he's really an absolutely, he, it would appear that he's an exceptional talent. I mean, I didn't really know anything about him until back half of last season. Maybe I don't think I'd ever necessarily even heard of him oh actually i remember a couple of years ago there was a a video about transfer deadline day that bleacher report did that followed him for the day and he seemed really impressive even in that like little short video and um that was the first time i was aware of him and so i haven't followed his career or anything but when you you look back on it he's done incredible work absolutely and sheffield united have been out of the premier league for a a long time and oh at least i mean they've been up and down haven't they um but but haven't spent much time in the Premier League really over the last 20 years. Uh, and uh, he's done it not on like piles and piles of outside money coming into Sheffield United by any means. Uh, and he's obviously a very smart coach who is making the most of his resources. Not sure we can quite say that about our manager right now. <laughs> we didn't, we haven't, he hasn't been fired. So the graveyard of the international, the autumn international window has not come down on Ollie's head, those victories just before the international break came at a, a very needed time. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be a huge setback if United uh, didn't win this game. Huge setback because we'd be like stepping back to sort of, you know, space one again. It's that but it's gonna be it's gonna be difficult and I I don't see any obvious path to United winning this game. Obvious path. No, just brilliant performances from the front three, really, and very solid performances from the back four. Those are those are that's the basis of it, because that middle three is gonna be uh a massive problem and you know but the, the the path that's the path to victory is some excellent outstanding individual performances and we know that's a roll of the dice don't we um so yeah i mean united are going to spend all season one game away from a crisis i think and i think that the next time we record after that sheffield united game we will probably be talking about united in crisis once again and probably not sheffield united as the ones in crisis um, so I guess we should... Uh, Predictions? Yeah, that's what we've got to do before we finish. Uh, I, I hate doing it. Hate, you hate to see it and I hate to do it, but I'm predicting a uh, a 1-0 defeat in Oof. this game. That's what I'm no, predicting. No, I'm, I'm, I, look, I, I... United could win this game, of course. <laughs> I think given uh, all the things we've just like kind of listed, and I don't think we've been particularly negative. The shortage no. of players... Um, Sheffield United's sort of systems make games, don't they? Being set up nicely, I think, to contain United. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for a one-all draw. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I say one-all defeat. I'm, maybe it sounds hugely negative, but it's just a kind of analysis thing. I, I don't, I think there's every chance that United turn up and turn them over. That's, you know, if we get an early goal, we could, we could, you know, we could impose because there's a lot of talent in United's front three in particular. So, you know, it could yeah, definitely that's, happen. That's right. Um, Sheffield United, of course, uh, 
Uh, I've, I've not gone to this game. I've been to Bramall Lane quite a few times with United over the years, including one FA Cup uh, game where I think I'm correct in saying Steve Bruce scored a penalty and we invaded the pitch. Not that I invaded the pitch. I'm saying we, the collective Manchester United, you know, masses invaded the pitch. So, were, Ed, were you on the Bramall Lane pitch? Or... No, no, no okay. I'm very good. Right. Um, the, uh, the, I hope Brandon Williams starts. I really hope Brandon Williams starts at left back. Um, I kind of, I guess if Young's fit, I guess I suspect he won't, but I, I hope he does. And, and worth saying. He deserves it. Like, he deserves it. He deserves to play Brandon Williams. Um, worth saying, we didn't really talk about this on the last show, but uh, Brandon Williams, underrated apso-maniac, like um, uh, sent off for headbutting someone in a youth game, squared up to a man four times his age in the in the game against Brighton. Like uh, he's he's always had a, he's had a bit of an edge. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's uh, we we had a question about it. We didn't uh, talk about it earlier, but uh, you know who who who's our king of Housery now that Herrera's gone. Uh, Marcus Rojo or Brandon Williams could could be there. But he could be there. He, he's too young to be a house. But it's he? different as well because there's a difference between uh, Ander Herrera snidiness and someone who's just actually literally double odd. Like Brandon Williams isn't snidey. He's just would appear to be double odd, basically. So good. We need a few more of those. All right. Uh, we're we're not double hard. That's why we're sat behind microphones talking about football rather than on the pitch giving. Sheffield United players, good kicking. <laughs> let's uh, let's hope uh, somehow United managed to do that and we can have a positive show next week because it was quite nice, actually, our last rank cast, to actually feel positive about the team again because it hasn't happened very often these uh, past well, six years. Absolutely. So thank you very much for listening and we'll be back with another show after Sheffield United. Patreon backers, stay tuned for more.